your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 as we continue our study through the book of Isaiah, through the Old Testament. And tonight, beginning with, with verse 40, I'm sorry, chapter 40, through chapter 66, it's really starting with chapter 40 tonight through 66, the rest of the book gives words of comfort. All right, chapters 1 through 39 were words of judgment. Remember the woes that were there and the burdens or the messages that Isaiah had for Israel? Well, they were woes, they were burdens, they were words of judgment. But now in chapter 40 through 66, he's going to give, Isaiah's going to give words of, of comfort to the nation of Israel. And also it could have a subtitle, God is greater than all of our circumstances. And, you know, I've said that many times and you know that. But we need to continually be reminded that God is greater than all of our circumstances. The following chapters, like I said, verse, chapter 40 through 66, they talk about the majesty of God, the glory of God, the magnificence of God, who's coming to rule the earth and judge all people. God's going to reunite Israel and Judah and he's going to restore them to glory. And instead of warning the people of coming judgment, Isaiah comforts them. And chapter 40 here refers to their restoration after their exile from the, from the land, from their land, and captivity. In chapters 40 through 48, God uses Cyrus to deliver Israel from Babylon, to redeem Israel and carry out divine judgment on Babylon, and to set the captives free and to restore Jerusalem and its temple. Babylon is a type of the world. It's a type of all of the world's evil, and it will be destroyed and the persecution of God's people will be over. So let's begin with verse 1, chapter 40. And it reads, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your Lord. Again, all of the woes of the first 39 chapters are now over. Because there's someone, someone who's coming, who later on will bring to pass everything that Isaiah said about him. He will be the one who invites everyone to come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord Jesus takes away men's heavy loads. God tells Isaiah to comfort, yes, comfort my people with this good news. And this is a gesture of God's great love, of God's desire to comfort, uh, to comfort us. And it comes from his loving heart. Our God is the God of all comfort. And that's the way Paul speaks of him in 2 Corinthians, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what Paul said. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, God doesn't comfort us just to make us uh, comfortable. He comforts us to comfort others as well. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. And Jesus said, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. He's our comforter today. Verse 2. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, it's been suggested that when there was a mortgage or something owed on a house in Israel, it was written on a piece of paper. It was a legal document. 
And then it would be put on the doorpost of that house so that all their neighbors and friends would know that they had a mortgage on their place. Then another copy was kept by the one who held the mortgage. And when that debt was paid, that second copy of the one who held the mortgage, that copy was nailed over the doorpost so that all could see the debt was paid in full. And this is what's meant here when it says, She has received from the Lord's hand double of all her sins. That is, the sins of Jerusalem were paid for by the one who suffered outside the city gates. Now, this is the difference between the way God dealt with his people in the Old Testament and how he deals with us today. You see, this is what separates Christianity from all of the pagan religions and from the Mosaic law. And the difference is found in that word that's hard to pronounce, propitiation. In the heathen religions, the people would bring an offering to their gods. They bring offerings to their gods to appease their gods. And that's what propitiation means, to appease. Now, a lot of people think that that's what propitiation means in the Bible. That we have to do something. We have to bring something to God or do something to win him over because God is angry with us. You see, in, in, in John 6, verses 28 through 29, the people asked Jesus, we want to perform God's work too. What should we do? What should we do? In other words, what are we to do to carry out what God requires? And Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one that he has sent, Jesus Christ. Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Notice, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, if it was something that we did, we'd let everybody know, oh, you know what I did for God? You know why I'm good with God? Well, let me tell you what I did. Paul says, hey, it's the gift of God, not of work, so that nobody could boast. God did it all for us. The people in heathen religions are always doing something because their gods are always angry with them. Their gods are hard to satisfy. Their gods' feelings are easily hurt, and they're not very friendly, and they're not very loving. The fact is that man's sin has separated man from God. Scripture says, your, your iniquities have separated from, you, uh, from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Isaiah 59, 2. And remember, God is the, initia- the initiator. God is the one who's done something. And today, God is the one providing the way of appeasement. You don't have to do anything to win God over. Remember, Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you, the initiator. It's, you know, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Notice, he's the initiator. He's always been the initiator. He's come after us. We didn't go after him. Propitiation is satisfying God's requirement for our sin. And it's his way and the only way of reconciliation with us and God. God has done it all. Everything that needs to be done, God has done it. Remember Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's done. There's nothing else to be done. Today, we're asked to be reconciled to God, not to, something, not to do something to win him over. God has already been won over. That's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We only need to believe and receive what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is the word of comfort for a lost world today. 
Judah still had a hundred years of trouble before Jerusalem would fall and then 70 years of exile. So God tells Isaiah, look, speak gently to my people and comfort Jerusalem with these words. And when we hear these words of comfort, they comfort us during tough times. And when your life seems to be falling apart, ask God to comfort you. You may not escape hard times. We're not immune to hard times. But you know what? You can find God's comfort as you face those hard times. And sometimes, you know what? The only comfort we have is that we know one day we will be with God. One day we're going to be with God. So be thankful for the comfort and the encouragement that we have in his words and in his presence and in his people. Verses 3 through 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert and a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Jews had a rough road to travel ahead of them as they returned to Jerusalem and, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. But it says here the Lord's going to go before them. He's going to clear the way. And the picture here is one of an ambassador repairing the roads and removing the obstacles, cleaning, clearing the way for the coming of a king. And Isaiah often used the picture of a highway in his prophecy. But the final fulfillment here is the ministry of John the Baptist as he prepared the way for the coming of Jesus Christ and his ministry, Matthew chapter 3. Spiritually speaking, Israel was in the wilderness when Jesus came. And the wilderness is a picture of, of life with all of its ups and downs and with all of its trials and sufferings. But when Jesus came, God's glory came. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of God came in the flesh to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the way back may not be easy, but you know what? If we're trusting in God, it will be easier. As I said, we're not exempt from trials and suffering, but our faith doesn't need to be hindered by, by, by trials and suffering. Isaiah told the people, get ready to see God work. Verses 6 through 8. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Man here is compared to grass in a field that, that, that withers right away as soon as the, the, the hot winds blow on it. So how can there be any comfort in being reminded that we're like grass? Grass doesn't last very long. And a man is just like that. We're like a vapor of smoke. We're here one minute and gone the next. Now that doesn't sound very comforting. But Assyria was gone and now Babylon was gone. You see, nations and their leaders are just like grass. They're weak. They're easily broken. They fulfill their purposes. They, go, they do what God has, has, has meant for them to do, and then they fade away. They're gone. 
but not the word of God. It says here, notice, it abides forever. It being the word of God. It abides forever. The word of God is strong. It is sure. It is secure. God's word is our hiding place. God's word is a safe place where we can rest. It's our sword and buckler. The word of God is our shield, our fortress, our high tower, our refuge, our protection, our security, and our salvation. As Israel started their long journey home, they could depend upon God's word. They could depend upon God's promises to get them there. Verses 9 through 11. O Zion, you who bring good tidings or good news, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Now, the nation Israel itself comes out of the valleys and it climbs to the mountaintop to, to, to declare God's victory over the enemy. He says to bring good tidings. This means to preach the good news, to preach the gospel. The good news in that day was the defeat of Babylon and the captive Jews being set free from their captivity. That was the good news. The good news today is that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, who defeated sin, and whoever trusts in him can receive salvation. The strong hand mentioned in these verses of the Lord is going to come. And he's going to come and he's going to set up his kingdom. And he's going to rule. God's arm is a mighty arm for winning the battle. But you know what? It's a loving arm as well for embracing and carrying his tired lambs. He's saying, we're going home. We're going home. That would definitely be good news to the destroyed cities of Judah. And it's good news for us because one day we're going home. You know, it could be tomorrow. It could be tonight. It could be next year. But we are going home. And we got to keep remembering that. Now, the Jews were few in number. There was just a small remnant of them. And they were facing a long, hard journey. And the victories of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, you know, all those victories made it look like the false gods of the Gentiles were stronger than the God of Israel. And many times when, when, when we see, we, we, we feel like we're losing the battles around us, you know, we, we sometimes think the same thing. Well, you know, Satan's getting the best of me. He's getting all the victory. And, and, and you know, Isaiah here, what he's doing, you know, he, he's reminded the people of the greatness of God. You know, again, they were looking at the false gods of the Gentiles. Man, they're stronger than our God of Israel. But again, in these verses, he's reminding them again about the greatness of Jehovah God. And when you see the greatness of God, then you will see everything else in life in its proper perspective. All right, just like the disciples. And that's what he's, you know, when they saw the feeding of the 5,000, when they saw Jesus walk on water, when they saw Jesus calm the stormy seas and raise the dead and cast out demons and turn water into wine and heal all manner of disease, they saw. 
They saw his mighty arm. And those are the things that we need to remember. We need to take into consideration what the mighty arm of God has done in your life in the past, in the present, and he's also going to do it in the future. Verse 12. And he goes on speaking about God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Who's done that? Weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in a, in, in a balance. He's saying, who's done that? He says, who else has held the oceans? What a picture that is. God holding the oceans in his hand. Man, that shows the, the, the enormity of our God. Isaiah says, who's measured off the heavens with his fingers? Isaiah says, who else knows the weight of the earth or the weight of the mountains and the hills on a scale? Who's done that? Verse 12 here starts off this section that speaks about the greatness of God as creator. Isaiah says, who has done the things that I have mentioned here? And that's, again, one thing to take into consider, to remember when we are going through difficult times. What has God done? He's such a great creator that all the waters of the earth were held, as it were, in his hand. Figuratively speaking, he can measure the vast star universe with the breadth of his hand, just the width of his hand. Also, the, all, the, all the earth's dusts could be put in a bucket, a bucket of his. The mountains and the hills though huge and infinite, are so small compared with our God that He, God, figuratively speaking, could weigh them all on small scales. And though the immensity of creation is, is just is mind-blowing, it's awe-inspiring, no one on earth is equal to our God. No one can compare to our God. There is no equal. And Isaiah emphasized that God in creating the universe did not need anybody to help him. God is greater than anything on earth or anything in heaven. And creation shows his wisdom, it shows his power, it shows his, his limitlessness. He's greater than nations and he's greater than the nation's gods. He created the earth and he sits on the throne of heaven and nothing is equal to our God, let alone, uh, again, let alone greater than our God. So Isaiah says all of this so that the next time you're tempted to think that the world is bigger than God and your problems are bigger than God or your circumstances are bigger than God, remember these things Isaiah said in verse 12. Warren Wisby said this, someone has defined circumstances, and I read this for you before, but we constantly need to be reminded. Someone has defined circumstances as those nasty things you see when you get your eyes off of God. If you look at God through your circumstances, he'll seem very small and very far away. But if you look at your circumstances by faith through God, he'll draw very near and show his greatness to you. Verse 13 and 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Nobody on earth can claim to have taught the Lord anything. God didn't need to consult anyone. 
He doesn't need to consult anyone. Isaiah may have been thinking about the creation story in Genesis 1 when he said this, where God spoke and creation came into being. God knows no equal, nor is there anyone that we can go to for advice. God has no equal. Verses 15 through 17. 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isle as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. In other words, all the nations of the world are just a drop in the bucket to God. They're nothing more than, than, than dust on the scales. God picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand, Isaiah says. All the wood in Lebanon's forest, he says, and all the animals wouldn't be enough to make a burnt offering for our God. He says the nations of the world are worth nothing to him, and in his eyes they count for less than nothing. You know, they're they're mere emptiness and worthless to God. Verse 18 To whom then, notice, to whom then, Isaiah says, will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Isaiah here is comparing God to men's idols. He says, who who will you liken God to, huh? Or what likeness can you compare to him? In other words, here the people were making these little gods, carving out these little gods and saying, here's my God. And then they'd set them on a table. And that's why God said, you shall not make any images or likeness or try to make any likeness of me. Because I am so vast, I am so infinite, that there's nothing that you could make that would be at all a likeness of me, even in the slightest bit. He is so vast, so infinite, that our puny little minds can't even start to comprehend him. He says, I dare you to compare me to anything that you might carve out with your hands. I dare you. Verses 19 through 26. The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their, their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. 
Isaiah says, can God be compared to an idol that's formed in a mold and then covered with gold and decorated with silver chains? He says, or if people are too, poor, are too poor for that, he says they might at least choose wood that won't decay and find a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. Isaiah says, haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words that he gave before the world began? He says, are you so ignorant? He says, notice, he says, God sits upon or sits above the circle of the earth. And many believe that this refers to the earth being round. He sits on the circle of the earth. The people below him, he says, are like grasshoppers in his eyes. He spreads out the the, the heavens like a curtain and and he makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world and he brings them all to nothing. He says, they hardly get started. They barely take root when he blows on them and they wither. The wind carries them off like chaff. And Isaiah says of God, to whom will you compare me? God says, who's my equal? Asked the Holy One. He says, look up into the mountains. Who created all the stars? And he says, he brings them out like an army. When you go out at night, you, and, you know, if you look up there, he's, he brings them all out like an army. One after another. And you know what? The Bible says he knows each one by name. And because of his great power and his incomparable strength, he says not a single one is missing. 27 through 31 now. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and not be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, notice, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary. Here in these verses... Isaiah talks again about, he's continuing to talk about God's greatness. He says, oh, Jacob, which is another name for Israel. Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord doesn't see your troubles? And how many times do we say, God doesn't even know what's going on in my life? Because he doesn't do something immediately when we think he should or want him to. We think, God's ignoring me. He doesn't see the troubles in my life. Isaiah says, oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? The Jews who were being held captive in Babylon felt like God had just abandoned them, left them alone. At one time or another, we've probably all asked or at least thought, where's God when I need him? You know, God asked so much of me. And then he doesn't do anything for me when I'm in trouble and when I need him. But Isaiah puts into words our wicked thoughts. He says, Isaiah isn't saying this now. When Isaiah says this here, he's not saying this to scold us or to point his finger at us and rebuke. He's saying it to challenge us. In verse 27, he says, notice, why do you say that? Why are you saying this? He says, think about it. He said, in verses 12 through 26, I already showed you he's not like anybody else. And I love it. He says, he says, he says, 
that God knows how many stars there are in the sky and he even calls them all by name. And we see this also in Psalm 147 verse 4. So the point he's making is, is, look, if not even one star goes unnoticed by God, you should be confident that God's eye is on you because you are more important than any star. Did you know that there are approximately 200 billion trillion stars in the universe? Or to put it another way, 200 sextillion stars? I have no idea what that looks like. The number is so big, it's hard to imagine. But here's a way to put it in perspective if you want to look at it. It's the number two with 21 zero, I'm sorry, 23 zeros after it. And how they can calculate that, I have no idea. But that's, that's a lot. The answer is, an, is it's absolutely amazing. And then he reminds, he reminds them of something else. He says, you are Jacob and Israel. He says, I made a covenant with you. You're important to me. And even though you're not perfect, and even though your faith is not perfect, he says, I will never fail to keep my promise to you. Everything that matters in life depends on who God is. And it says what? God is everlasting. We're not. And we're pressured and we're bound by time. He's not. He's creator. He knows every square inch of this earth. And wherever life takes us, wherever, wherever it leads us, you know what? God is already there. He's already there. Whether we're in a faraway country or we're in the privacy of our own room, he's already there. Psalm 139 tells us that. 1 Kings 8.20 says that behold heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. The universe, it can't contain him. He's bigger than the universe. He's bigger than the heavens. And God is always working. Isaiah says he never, he, he never faints, nor is he weary. He never sleeps, he never slumbers. We can't say that about ourselves, can we? we're told we have to have eight hours of sleep a day. We sleep a third of our life away and trying to rest, staying healthy. And then we die anyway. God is never tired. God never needs to take a power nap. You know, now and then. He's always doing something. He's always doing things for you that you're not aware of. It says here he's understanding and unsearchable. He's wise. And to us, life is a mystery, it's confusing, and it's unexplainable, and it doesn't make sense many times. But God can make sense out of the insensible. We don't have answers for the things that happen in this life. But God knows life because he created life. He understands life. He knows exactly what and why things happen, and he alone knows how to fix it. Don't try to figure out God. All you'll do is torment yourself. Why, God, did you do this? Why didn't you do it that way? How come, Lord? What's the purpose in all of this? Don't try to figure out God. We just submit to him because he's infinite in his wisdom. He knows all things. Therefore, he knows what to do. And, and we just accept his ways by faith. 
God is always present. He's always working. He always knows what to do, and he always knows what's going on. So that being the case, why worry? His strength makes us strong in our weaknesses. God is speaking to weak, tired, discouraged people here. Who are the weak? Well, it was the complainers back in verse 27 of of our chapter. They're weak in faith. Their their weariness is spiritual. They're weak in courage, and they feel like quitting. And it's their weakness and ours that receives God's power to live with our heads up and confidence in a big God because, you see, we can see in His promise a bright future for us, and, 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 you know, we can see beyond our circumstances. Jesus said, To Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, my strength is made perfect in weakness. What did Paul say? When I am weak, then I am strong. You see, the Lord is attracted to weakness. He will allow you to go on in your own strength as you try to fix your own problems. He'll sit back and watch you struggle and grunt and groan and throw a fit. And when you give up and you say, okay, Lord, take over. He goes, just waiting for you to say so. He's attracted to weakness. And people who find the reasons for living in God have a supernatural persistence about them. It keeps them going. They live, they, they live continually being renewed and re-strengthened, revitalized. Verse 30 and 31 here tells us how he does it. Isaiah makes the point in verse 30 that even man's strength at its best, man, when we are at our strongest, sooner or later we're going to fail anyway. Because we're no, we are no match for what this life can do to us. We're not. No matter how educated, how strong, how, how, how courageous we might be. But thank God that there's a power greater than ourselves that we can experience, that we can go to. And we can draw strength from His promises, His word, helping us to do what we need to do to do the impossible. Isaiah says, the weak shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Why? Because of their confidence in God. He will not let them down. He will not let them quit. It's not a matter of what I can find in myself. It's what I can expect out of God. The key to this strength, Isaiah says, is those who wait on the Lord. And that's the hard part. Waiting. Waiting. And this waiting on the Lord means to live in confident, eager anticipation. That is a confident expectation, a confident hope. God said it. Our difficulty is he just didn't say when it was going to happen. But he said it's going to happen. It means to live with the hope of promises that God has revealed to us in his word, yet they haven't been fulfilled. And this waiting is forgetting what's behind. It's looking ahead. It's reaching forward to what lies ahead of us. And it's pressing towards the goal. Waiting, man, is an important important part of our faith. Waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. He says, wait for it. Wait for it. It's coming. Wait for it. God gives us great and precious promises, the Bible says. And then you know what? He gives them to us and he says, okay, now wait for it. 
Because during that waiting period, you're learning, you're growing, you're experiencing the things of God. And this great hope that he gives us, it empowers us through that waiting. In closing, how does God strengthen us? Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to let God set the pace? Remember, he doesn't wear a watch. You aren't going to see any clocks when you get to heaven. It's his timing. And he knows what's best and when it's best. So will you allow God to set the pace or are you just going to live on on your terms? Or are you going to live on God's terms? If you think God is worth waiting for, then you know what? Your heart's going to keep on waiting and you're going to be renewed day by day. What was the scripture said? You know, the old man's perishing, but we're being renewed day by day. We're all weak, every single one of us. We don't have to be supermen and superwomen. God simply says, believe. He calls us to believe. And he, you know, he simply calls us to believe what we believe as he reveals it to us in Scripture and to set our minds and our hearts on those things that he's revealed to us, those things above, not the things of the earth. And if we will do that, then, then our desire for God, our longing for him, is the way that his power will lift us up, renew us, and encourage us every day all the way. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful chapter, Lord. And Father, there's so much to glean from it, Lord. God, may we look at it, read it, study it. Father, just dissect it, God. And look at all the powerful and encouraging things that you have for us there, God. And Lord, let us be renewed day by day in our strength and in our hope and in our faith, Lord. In our attitude, Lord. May these things bring us great joy. As Jesus said, that our joy may be full. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful, the precious promises that you've given us, God. That we stand upon. That we look to. That we hold near and dear to our hearts, God. Because they give us hope. And we need hope. And we have a hope. The psalmist said, our expectation is in him. And without any expectation, we have no hope. But you're our hope, Lord. And we thank you that you're our blessed hope. And one day, God, we will be with you. The ultimate hope that we have. Father, be with your people. Watch them. Bless them. Be over them, God. Take care of them throughout the week. Protect us, God, from all harm. And Lord, bring us back together this Sunday, Lord. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.